Chapter 13 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 13. They settled down swiftly and prosaically into a married state which entailed no immediate alteration, save one, in life as they had hitherto shared it. Matrimony shorn of rings and a previous engagement shorn of ceremony, honeymoon, change of residence, and comments of friends revealed itself as a curiously simple undertaking, and, by its very simplicity, disappointing, so far at least as Ada was concerned. Her conscience, in the matter of legal and religious observance, was not unduly tender, and her embryo scruples concerning the absence of legal or religious sanction to their union were easily allayed by her husband's assurance that they were as truly married as it was possible to be in a world without churches or registrars. What she missed far more than certificate or blessing was the paraphernalia and accompanying circumstance of the wedding to which she had always looked forward as the culminating point of her existence. Her veil, her bouquet, her bevy of bridesmaids, her importance. When she sat with her back against a tree trunk, listlessly unobservant of the play of dappled sunlight or the tracery of leafage, she would crave in the shallows of her disappointed heart for the gaudy little sitting room that should have been her newly married dwelling. Contrasting its impossible and non-existent splendors, with the ramshackle roof tree under which she took shelter from the weather. The gaudy, tasteless, stuffy little room wherein she should have set out her wedding presents, displayed her photos, and done honors of possession to her friends. That was matrimony as she understood it, enhanced importance, display of her matronly dignity, and instead, a marriage that aroused no envy, called forth no jests, affected none but the partners to the bond in the unchanged discomfort of unchanged surroundings, wherein, being crowd-bred, she could see little beauty and no meaning, in the frequent loneliness and silence abhorrent to her noise-loving soul, with the evening companionship of a wearied man to whom her wifehood meant no more than a physical relation. Theodore, being male, was not troubled by her abstract longings for the minor dignities of matrimony, and, expecting little from his married life, it could not bring him disillusion. Ada might have fancied that what stirred in her was love. He had always known himself moved by a physical instinct only. Thus, of the pair, he was the less to be pitied when the increased familiarity of their life in common brought its necessary trouble in the shape of friction, revealing the extent of their unlikeness and even, with time, their antagonism. One of the results of her vague but ever-present sense of grievance her lasting homesickness for a world that had crumbled, was a lack of interest in the world as it was, and a reluctance to adapt herself to an environment altogether hateful. Hence, on Theodore's side, a justified annoyance at her continued want of resource and the burdensome stupidity which threw extra labor on himself. She was a thoroughly helpless woman, helpless after the fashion of the town-bred specialist, the product of division of labor, the country, to her, was a district to drive through in a shower bank with convenient halts at public houses. 
having lived all her days as the member of a crowd, she was a creature incomplete and undeveloped. She had schooled with a crowd and worked with it, shared its noise and its ready-made pleasures. It is possible that, till red ruins came, she had conceived of no other existence. Leaving school, she had entered a string factory, where she pocketed a fairly comfortable wage in return for the daily and yearly manipulation of a machine devoted to the production of a finer variety of twine. Having learned to handle the machine with ease, life had no more to offer her in the way of education, and development came to a standstill. Her meals, for the most part, she obtained without trouble from factory canteens, cheap restaurants, or municipal kitchens. Thus, her domestic duties were few. The daily smearing of a bedroom, frequently omitted, and the occasional cobbling of a garment, bought ready-made. Her reading, since her school days, had consisted of novelettes only, and even to these she was not greatly addicted, preferring, as a rule, a more companionable form of amusement. A party to the pictures, gossip with her girlfriends, and flirtations more or less open. At twenty-three, when disaster came, she was a buxom, useless, and noisy young woman, good-natured, with the brain of a hen, incapable alike of boiling a potato or feeling an interest in any subject that did not concern her directly. There were moments when she irritated Theodore intensely by her infantile helplessness and the blunders that resulted therefrom, by her owlish stupidity in the face of the new and unfamiliar, and there were moments when, for that very owlishness, he pitied her with equal intensity, realizing that his own loss, his daily wretchedness, was a small thing indeed beside hers. The ruin of a world could not rob him utterly of his heritage of all the ages. Part of that heritage no ruin could touch, since he had treasure stored in his heart and brain for so long as his memory should last. But for Ada, whose world had been a world of cheap finery, of giggling gossip and evenings at the cinema, there remained from the ages nothing. Gossip and cinemas, flowered hats and ribbon-trimmed camisoles, they had left not a rack, save regret, for her mind to feed on. As the workings of her vacant little soul were laid bare to him, he understood how dreadful was its plight, how pitiably complete must be the blankness of a life such as hers bereft of the daily little personal interests wherein had been summed up a world. She, unhandy, unresourceful, superficial, was one of the natural and inevitable products of a mechanical civilization, which, in saving her trouble, had stunted her, interposing itself between primary cause and effect. Bread, to her, was food bought at a counter, not grown with labor in a field, the result not of rain, sun, and furrow, but of sixpence handed to a tradesman. And cunning men of science had wrestled with the forces of nature that she might drop a penny in the slot for warmth or suck sweets with her boy at the pictures. He guessed her a creature who had always lived noisily, a babbler whom even his fits of taciturnity would not have daunted had she found much to babble of in the lonely world she shared with him. But, bewildered and awed by it, oppressed by its silence, she found meager subject matter for the very small talk which was her only method of expression. Under the peace and vastness of the open sky, she was homesick for a life that excluded all vastness and peace. Her sorrow's crown of sorrow was a helpless, incessant craving for little meaningless noises and little personal excitements. 
Sometimes at night, as they sat by the fire, he would see her face pathetic in its blank dreariness, her eyes wandering from the glow of the fire to the darkness beyond it and back from the darkness to the glow, endeavoring, or so he imagined, to piece together some form of inner life from fragmentary memories of past inanity and aimless ephemeral happenings. The sight often moved him to pity, but he cast about in vain for a means of allaying her sodden and persistent discontent. Once or twice he attempted to awaken her interest by explaining, as he would have explained to a child, the movements of nightly familiar stars, the habits of birds, or the process of growth in vegetation. These things, as he took care to point out, now concerned her directly, were part of the round of her existence, but the fact had no power to stimulate a mind which had been accustomed to accept, without interest or inquiry, the marvels of mechanical science. She carried over into her new life the same lack of curiosity which had characterized her dealings with the old. She was no more alive to the present phenomena of the open field than to the past phenomena of the electric switch, the petrol engine, or the gas meter. And the workings of the gas meter at least had been pleasant, while the workings of raw nature repelled her. Thus, Theodore's only reward for his attempt at education was a bored, inattentive remark to the effect that she had heard her teacher say something like that at school. She had all the crowd liver's horror of her own company, strengthened, in her case, by dislike of her surroundings, amounting to abhorrence and the abiding nervousness that was a natural after-effect of the days when she had fled from her fellows and cowered to the earth in an abject and animal terror. Her unwillingness to let Theodore out of her sight was comprehensible enough, if irritating, but there were times when it was more than irritating, a difficulty added to life. It was impossible to apportion satisfactorily a daily toil that, if Ada had her way, must always be performed in company. While her customary fellowship on his hunting and snaring expeditions meant not only the presence of a clumsy idler, but the dying down of a neglected log fire and the postponement of all preparations for a meal until after their return to camp. Further, it was a bar to that wider exploration of the neighborhood, which, as time went on, he desired increasingly, confining him, except on comparatively rare occasions, to such range from his hearthstone as could be attained in the company of Ada. So long as he attributed it to the workings of fear only, he was hopeful that, with time, her abhorrence of loneliness might pass. But as the months went by, he realized that it was not only fear that kept her close to his heels— her town-bred incapacity to interest or occupy herself. Once, when the call of the outside world grew louder, he proposed to Ada that he should see her well provided with a store of food and fuel and leave her for two or three days, hoping to tempt her to agreement by pointing out the probability, amounting to certainty, that other survivors of disaster must be dwelling somewhere within reach, peaceable survivors with whom they could join forces with advantage. Her face lit up for a moment at the idea of other men's company, but when she understood that he proposed to go alone, her terror at the idea of being left was abject and manifest. She was afraid of everything and anything, of ghosts, of darkness, of prowling men, of spiders and possible snakes, and, having reasoned in vain, in the end, he gave her the assurance she clamored for, that she should not be called on to suffer the agony of a night by herself. He gave her the promise in sheer pity, 
but regretted it as soon as made. He had set his heart on a journey in search of the world that gave no sign, planning to undertake it before the days grew shorter. But he did not disguise from himself that there might still be danger in the expedition, which Ada's hampering presence would increase. The project was abandoned for the time being in the hope that she would see reason later, but he regretted his promise and weakness the more when he found that Ada did not trust to his word, and fearing lest he give her the slip, now clung to him as closely as his shadow. Her suspicion and stupidity annoyed him, and there were times when he was ashamed of his own irritation when he saw her trotting like a dog at his heels or squatting within eyeshot of his movements. He was conscious of a longing to slap her silly face, and more than once he spoke sharply to her, urged her to go home, whereupon she sulked or cried, but continued her trotting and squatting. The irritation came to a head one afternoon, in the early days of autumn, when, with persistent ill luck, he had been fishing a mile or so from home. Various causes combined to bring about the actual outbreak, a growing anxiety with regard to the winter supply of provisions, sharpened by the discovery the night before that a considerable proportion of his store of vegetables was a failure and already malodorous. The ill success of several hours fishing and gusty, unpleasant weather that chilled him as he huddled by the water. The weather worsened after midday, the gusts bringing rain in their wake, a cold, slanting shower that sent him in all haste to the clump of trees where Ada had sheltered since the morning. The sight of her sitting there to keep an eye on him, uselessly watchful and shivering to no purpose, annoyed him suddenly and violently. He turned on her sharply as the shower passed and bade her go home on the instant. She was to keep a good fire, a blazing fire. He would be drenched and chilled by the evening. She was to have water boiling that the meal might be cooked the moment he returned with the wherewithal. While he spoke, she eyed him with questioning, distrustful sullenness. Then, convinced that he meant what he said, half rose, only after a moment of further hesitation, to slide down to her former position with her back against the trunk of a beech tree. I don't want to, she said doggedly. I want to stay here. I don't see why I shouldn't. What do you want to get rid of me for? The suspicion that lay at the back of the refusal infuriated him. It was suddenly intolerable to be followed and spied on, and he lost his temper badly. The rough-tongued vehemence of his anger surprised himself as much as it frightened his wife. He swore at her, threatened to duck her in the stream, and poured out his grievances abusively. What good was she, a clog on him, who could not even tend a fire, a helpless idiot who had to be waited on, a butter-fingered idler without brains, let her do what he told her and make herself of use, unless she wanted to be turned out to fend for herself. Much of what he said was justified, but it was put savagely and coarsely, and when cowed perhaps by the suggestion of a ducking, Ada had taken to her heels in tears, he was remorseful as well as surprised at his own vehemence. He had not known himself as a man who could rail brutally and use threats to a woman. The revelation of his new possibilities troubled him, and when, towards sundown, he gathered up his meager prey and stepped out homeward, it was with the full intention of making amends to Ada for the roughness of his recent outburst. His path took him through a copse of brushwood into what had been a cart track, now grass-grown and crumbling between hedges that straggled and encroached. 
The wind, rising steadily, was sweeping ragged clouds before it, and as he emerged from the shelter of the copse, he was met by a stinging rain. He bent his head to it in shivering discomfort, thrusting chilled hands under his cloak for warmth and longing for the blaze and the good warm meal that should thaw them. He had left the copse a good minute behind him when, from the further side of the overgrown hedge, he heard sudden rending of brambles, a thud and a human cry. A yard or two on was a gap in the hedge where a gate still swung on its hinges. He rushed to it, quivering at the thought of possibilities, and found Ada struggling to her knees. She began to cry loudly when she saw him, like a child caught in flagrant transgression, protesting with bawling and angry tears that she wasn't going to be ordered about and she should stay just where she liked. It did not take him long to gather that her previous flight had been a semblance only, and that, shivering and haunted by ridiculous suspicion, she had watched him all the afternoon from behind the screen of the copsewood, for company partly, but chiefly to make sure he was there. Seeing him gather up his tackle and depart homeward, she had tried to outpace him unseen, keeping the hedge between them as she ran and hoping to avert a second explosion of his wrath by blowing up the ashes of the fire before his arrival at the camp. An unsuspected rabbit burrow had tripped her hurrying feet and brought about disaster and discovery, and she made unskillful efforts to turn the misfortune to account by rubbing her leg and complaining of damage sustained. In contact with her stubborn folly, his repentance and kindly resolutions were forgotten. He cut short her bid for sympathy with a curt, Get along with you, caught her by the arm, and startled her with a push along the road, too angry to notice that, for the first time, he had handled her with actual violence. Then, bending his head to the sweep of the rain, he strode on, leaving her to follow as she would. Perhaps her leg really pained her. Perhaps she judged it best to keep her distance from his wrath. At any rate, she was a hundred yards or more behind him when he reached the camp and stirring the ashes that should have been a fire found only a flicker alive. He cursed Ada's idiocy between his chattering teeth as he set to work to rekindle the fire, his hands shaking, half from anger, half from cold, as he gathered the fuel together. When, after a long interval of coaxing and cursing, the flame quivered up into the twilight. It showed him Ada sitting humped at the entrance of their shelter and at sight of her inert and watching him, watching him. His wrath flared sudden and furious. Have you filled the cook pot, he asked, standing over her? No? Then what were you doing, sitting there staring while I worked? She began to whimper. You're cruel to me, and repeated her parrot-like burden of futile suspicion and grievance that she knew he wanted to get her out of the way so as he could leave her and she couldn't be left alone for the night. He had a sense of being smothered by her foolish invertebrate persistence, and as he caught her by the shoulders, he trembled and sputtered with rage. God in heaven, what's the good of talking to you? If you take me for a liar, you take me, that's all. Do you think I care a curse for your opinion? But one thing's certain, you'll do what I tell you, and you'll work. Work, do you hear? Not sit in a lump and idle and stare while I wait on you. Learn to use your silly hands, not expect me to light the fire and feed you. And you'll obey, I tell you, you'll do what you're told. If not, I'll teach you. He was wearied, thwarted, wet through, and unfed since the morning. 
balked of fire and a meal by the folly that had irked him for days, a man living primitively in contact with nature and brought face to face with the workings of the law of the strongest. It chanced that she had lumped herself down by the bundle of osier rods he had laid together for his basket making, so that when he gripped her by the nape of the neck, a weapon lay ready to his hand. He used it effectively, while she wriggled, plunged, and howled. There was nothing of the Spartan in her temperament, and each swooping stroke produced a yell. He counted a dozen and then dropped her, leaving her to rub and bemoan her smarts while he filled the cookpot at the stream. When he came back with the cookpot filled, her noisy blubbering had died into gulps and snuffles. The heat of his anger was likewise over, having worked itself off by the mere act of chastisement, and with the cooling, he was conscious of a certain embarrassment. If he did not repent, he was at least uneasy, not sure how to treat her and speak to her, and he covered his uneasiness as best he might by a busy scraping and cleaning of fish and a noisy snapping of firewood. A wiser woman might have guessed his embarrassment from his bearing and movements and known how to rest an advantage by transforming it into remorse. Ada, sitting huddled and smarting on her moss bed, found no more effective protest against ill-treatment than a series of unbecoming sniffs. With every silent moment, his position grew stronger, hers weaker. Unconsciously, he sensed her acquiescence in the new and brutal relation, and when, over his shoulder, he bade her, come along if you want any supper, he knew, without looking, that she would come at his word, take the food that he gave her, and eat. They discussed the subject once and very briefly at the latter end of a meal consumed in silence. A full stomach gives courage and confidence, and Ada, having supped and been heartened, tried a sulky, You've been very cruel to me. In answer, she was told, You deserved it. After this unpromising beginning, it took her two or three minutes to decide on her next observation. I believe, she quavered tearfully, you've taken the skin off my back. Nonsense, he said curtly, which was true. The episode marked his acceptance of a new standard, his definite abandonment of the code of civilization in dealings between woman and man. With another wife than Ada, the lapse into primitive relations would have been less swift and certainly far less complete. She was so plainly his mental inferior, so plainly amenable to the argument of force and no other, that she facilitated his conversion to the barbaric doctrine of marriage. And his conversion was the more thorough and lasting from the success of his uncivilized methods of ruling a household, where reasoning and kindliness had failed of their purpose the sting of the rod had worked wonders. Ada sulked through the evening and sniffled herself to sleep, but in the morning, when he woke, she had filled the cook pot and was busied at the breakfast fire. They had adapted themselves to their environment, the environment of primitive humanity. That morning, when he started for his snaring, he started alone. Ada stayed, without remonstrance, to dry moss, collect firewood, and perform the small duties of the camp. End of chapter 13. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.